0: This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet, and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development, I am Francesco Manetti, standing in for Brian Thompson, who is out and about chasing more stories for our program. And co-presenting this edition, I'm Ian Smith. Brian will be back next month with more news fresh from the farm. But let's hear what's on the menu for this episode.
1: With food prices soaring and global agricultural productivity slowing, we face some very real decisions about how we're going to feed ourselves and our livestock in the future. So in this month's episode, we're focusing on an intriguing and innovative alternative way to meet those needs. Yes, we're bugging out and turning our attention to the
0: wonderful world of insects. Even the likes of Hollywood star Robert Downey Jr. have joined the chorus of insect-protein-loving lovies, During a recent interview, the Ironman star argued that insect-based products represent a major breakthrough for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. As we'll hear later in this episode, insects emit about 100 times less greenhouse gases than cows to produce the same amount of food. At the same time, insects consume significantly less water and feed than traditional livestock all while producing meat, which is several times denser in protein and nutrients.
1: Recent years have seen an explosion of investments in companies spearheading the insect industry. For example, Robert Downey Jr. is a founder of the Footprint Coalition, which invests in venture capital for innovative and sustainable businesses. Together with other investors, they have committed 372 million US dollars to finance the construction of an enormous mealworm farm in France. The demand for insect protein, mainly as an ingredient in animal feed and pet food, could reach half a million metric tons by 2030, up from today's market of around 10,000 tons per year. That's the prediction of a recent Rabo research report.
0: Starting off this month's program is Eric Smoling. A leading light in food systems research from Wageningen University in the Netherlands, who was also a lead writer on IFAD's Rural Development Report. After that, Ian will be speaking to Dr. Sedgan Sabramanian, head of the Environment Department at the International Center of Insect Physiology and Ecology. He dug into the 2019 locust plague, the biggest of its kind in decades, and into one of the ways that people deal with insect pests, which is, well, eating them. If you think
1: livestock is all cows and sheep, think again. Insects are livestock too. EFED senior livestock expert, Antonio Vrata, is getting down on the ground in the world of insects as he joins the show to share some exciting prospects for the future of the industry in our Bugalicious episode 32. And ahead of the Insects to Feed the World conference in Quebec this June, We'll be talking to our newest Recipes for Change chef, Joseph Yoon, who runs Brooklyn Bugs. His mission is to raise appreciation and awareness for edible insects through delicious, educational, and creative programming. He's regularly featured in the media for his helpful and digestible explanations on how to successfully
0: integrate insect protein into our lives. Also in the program, we have the good people from Legendary Foods Africa the first company in the world to attempt the large-scale growing and manufacturing of palm larvae. They believe that popularizing edible insects manufacturing is vital to overcoming malnutrition and achieving protein sovereignty in Africa. Ian will be meeting with Shobita Sor, their founder and CEO, to get an inside peek behind their laboratory doors. After that is Laura Gilmore, co-founder of Food for Soul,
1: back this episode to talk about how they connect the dots between food waste, nutritious food, and a more sustainable food system. And in this bumper episode, we have our second of
0: three visits to the good people at the Global Donor Platform. Here, we're going to hear all about innovations and trends amongst donors in the development business. Closing us off is IFET's Romina Kavitasi from the Impact Assessment Team, talking about lessons learned around our work with farmers in Tajikistan.
1: Don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please, get in touch with us at podcasts at efad.org. And you can subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform. And please, rate us. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Ian Smith, and with me is Francesco Manetti. The first expert on insects as food that we're speaking to is Eric Smalling, a researcher at Wageningen University and lead author of EFAD's Rural Development Report. Dr. Smalling introduces us to edible insects by laying out some basic facts about insect consumption around the world, including how they compare to traditional livestock and why we won't be able to do without these foods in the future.
2: There are uh about 2,000 insect species that are regarded as edible, and, and many of them are in fact uh, eaten. There's a, a, a range, quite a variety of, of insects that are being eaten. It depends also on uh, local preferences, but also on the uh, abundance of certain type of insects that that uh, are found, like in East Africa, Uganda, Tanzania, Kenya has a long history of of uh, eating insects, where grasshopper and termites, for instance, are are popular. That's also as a result of of their um, prominence in those areas. But you see that in many places also, increasingly in in uh, European countries, after uh, it has been uh, released by the European Safety Organisation, that mealworms become uh, mainstream in all kinds of, of food products. Um, you see bugs and butterflies in Southeast Asia, but you also see a roasted bee larvae and, and fried silkworm moth larvae in China. Sometimes in some parts of the world, the larvae are more uh, appreciated than let's say uh, a full-fledged uh, cockroach or, or grasshopper. But almost everything is edible. I mean, cockroaches also are, um, perhaps not uh, those ones around the houses, but there are cockroach subspecies that are uh, very clean and and quite edible. Besides, a lot of uh, insects are can be uh, can be turned into powdery substances, or or freeze dried, or um, mixed with salt and butter and caramel, so you can produce all kinds of Insect-based products that that where you don't recognize the insect as such. So it's actually a, a wide range of of suitable and appreciated insects.
1: All right. Question number two. So how do insects compare to traditional animal feed in terms of environmental effect, cost, nutrition, etc.?
2: Uh, insects have a, a series of advantages when compared to traditional um, the, the bigger animal production groups like uh, dairy cattle, beef, and uh, pigs and goats. They do not use a lot of space. They do not use a lot of water, nutrients, and energy, and they are rich in proteins and they have much lower. Uh, greenhouse gas emissions than the, the larger animals. They have about 100 times uh, lower greenhouse gas emission levels than uh, beef cattle and, and pigs. And their, uh, their multiplication rate, of course, is much larger than for these, these large animals. They can feed on manures and on uh, residues from, uh, from consumption, rotten fruits, etc. So the the products that they need to multiply themselves are actually regarded as waste by us. So in
1: general, what are the main differences in the insect rearing industry in Europe and the US compared to the rest of the world?
2: Yeah, in, in um, you could say that there are differences between the uh, European countries and the U.S. on one hand and developing countries on the other hand. But there are some other uh, contrasts that are relevant here that's between rural and urban. You see in, in Southeast Asia, for instance, uh, rural people are common uh, consumers of insects and urban people are much less. Um, then there is also there are religious issues in Islam, for instance, Eating insects is most of the time not halal because they are regarded as not having blood. And that, of course, is also some uh, something of importance. Then warm and cold climates um, is important because the species diversity in cold climates is much smaller than in warm climates. So in warm climates, it's more common to eat them. And like I said before, in many tropical regions, insects are regarded as food and not as a nuisance, as opposed to the views in in colder regions. I think the the, the main thing is the awareness-raising advocacy that people understand that we can in future not do without these novel foods, without insects that are so protein-rich. It's a matter of... of, um, of course, in affordable prices in the first place, but also changing it from a strange object to a delicacy. The point is that it is a, a percentage of the population that is not used to eating insects. But if you see that you can also make all kinds of products based on insects, where they are not actually um, seen as such anymore, there is a, there is an immense perspective because the between now and 2050 we need a 60% increase in protein sources to feed the increasing population and we cannot realize that um, on the basis of current animal production systems so insects and also algae seaweed so those are the two groups the two food groups that um, that have high promises
3: That
0: was Eric Smalling, researcher, food systems expert, and one voice in a global chorus calling for better and buggier diets. Up next, we turn to Dr. Sevgen Sabramanian to look at a more concrete example of what harvesting insects from the wild can look like. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Francesco Manetti, and with me is Ian Smith. Dr. Sevgan Subramanian is a scientist who currently works as head of environmental health at ICIPE, the International Center of Insect Physiology and Ecology. With over 150 publications and nearly two decades of experience, he is well-known and well-versed in talking insects
1: for food. While most of this episode is focused on growing insects for food, we brought on Dr. Sabramanian, to give us perspective on the consumption of wild insects. I started the conversation by asking about the recent 2019 to 2021 locust plague, which was absolutely unprecedented in size. Swarms the size of Luxembourg ravaged fields from the East African plain to the Central Asian steppe.
4: It was the worst outbreak in 25 years in uh, countries like Ethiopia, while in Kenya, where I live it has not experienced such a plague in the past 70 years. So definitely an unprecedented uh, swamp. The plague was big, uh, largely because of several connected reasons. Uh, One is, obviously, it uh, relates to climate change. Unexpected rainfalls in the Arabian Peninsula uh, actually resulted in the locust population uh, outbreaking there. Uh, The second factor was, on the way the locust uh, plague happened, Uh, there are uh, locations where conflicts Are ongoing, Uh, for instance, through Yemen and Somalia, where uh, ground interventions are difficult to control. And all this put together made the locust plague quite big and also uh, unprecedented, and the damage levels were also quite high. More than 2.25 million hectares was devastated, and more than 20 million people faced severe food security constraints. The recovery cost from the damage caused due to the locust can be anywhere between one to nine billion US dollars uh, in all these affected countries. And most of the management of locusts uh, was largely based on insecticide sprays, massive sprays of insecticides backed by surveillance. When the locust flies as adult, uh, we are basically fighting a losing battle. Uh, and at that point of time, there is, uh, we, are, we, are, we are forced to use uh, very tough measures like chemical pesticides and things but if you ask me if this is a sustainable way of managing locusts, I would say no.
1: So what are alternative solutions to using chemical pesticides?
4: So the first strategy is very effective surveillance. So that is one. And then the second one is alternatives to chemical pesticides in the form of biopesticides. Apart from the uh, biopesticides, there are also alternative solutions in the form of uh, uh, what we call as semi-chemicals. Semi-chemicals are chemicals which insects use to communicate between one another. Now, uh, in this locust, the few things also emerge, like for instance, in countries like Pakistan and also in Kenya, uh, communities uh, collected locusts uh, for uh, either for consuming or to the feed sector. Uh, if you don't manage to have a very effective harvesting mechanism, they will still cause damage and you can't prevent people from spraying them. And if you can't prevent people from spraying them, a sprayed locust cannot go into the feed sector. So it's a kind of a catch-29 situation.
1: What are the most important steps that need to be taken to make insect consumption as a form of pest management more effective, more efficient? Uh, You know, like what are some more of these technologies and what specifically needs to be researched and improved upon?
4: I would say the most critical one is to understand how effectively you can harvest these insects. Why I'm saying that is if we don't have that uh, harvesting mechanism, as much as I collect some few hundred or few uh, thousand kilograms of insects, more insects are still going to remain in the ecosystem and then people are going to be affected and uh, they're going to spray and things as as the case of the locust. And biosafety issues, this is very critical because uh, when uh, an insect uh, migrates or when the insect pest outbreaks and then swarms like locust, it is being sprayed at one end and the other end we might be trying to harvest it and consume it. So there should be a clear uh, uh, mechanisms to uh, assess the biosafety of the locust that is uh, locust or any other pest that is harvested, and so that they can be integrated into the food or the feed uh, sector. So uh, there are options of when we can convert a pest problem into an opportunity when and they can be taken both as a human food or and to the animal feed sector.
1: Last question for you. Around the world, how common is insect consumption, and what factors does it depend upon?
4: Around the world, uh, especially in the tropics, insect consumption is uh, quite uh, common. Uh, Either in Africa or uh, South America or in uh, Southeast Asia, traditional insect consumption is common. Uh, Estimates put it at close to 1,900 species of insects uh, have been known to be consumed. And uh, at least 2 billion people uh, in the world have experiences of insect consumption in one, one way or the other. In um, Africa, more than 500 species of uh, insects are consumed. If you ask me what, is, what are the factors that are, uh, uh, that defines insect consumption, I will say uh, cultural beliefs, traditions uh, comes first. There are communities which are used to consuming insects and they, uh, they consume it for their nutritive value they consume it uh, because they are uh, delicacies uh, and they also cont- they consume it because it contributes to their uh, uh, energy needs and also some medicinal uh, properties and so on. Yeah, And then uh, there are situations where, uh, like in the case of a locust, you have a huge swarm of insects and then uh, the community which are affected by these insects also turn uh, to look at them as an opportunity to consume them.
1: That was Dr. Sevgan Subramanian, who gave us a fascinating insight into how people turn pest problems into more protein on the plate. Please tune in to any of our 30 plus podcasts and over 300 reports from across the world of farms, food, future.
0: In episode 29, we celebrated International Women's Day with reports from gender award winning projects across the world. In episode 30, we talked about balancing biodiversity and heard about projects in Turkey, Haiti and Eswatini. And in episode 31, we looked at the issue of social justice and the fight for decent livelihoods for small-scale farmers in developing countries. Next month, in episode 33, we'll be looking at building resilience in a time where widespread famine looms. Coming up now, we hear from Chef Joseph Yoon at Brooklyn Bucks. Joseph Yoon is one of the loudest rising voices calling for the integration of insects into Western diets. He believes that insects are a crucial element for the sustainable future of food and uses his culinary expertise to help people overcome their squeamishness.
1: Besides regularly being featured in various media, he was recently the Culinary Director at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. And coming up, he'll be the Culinary Director at Insects to Feed the World. He teaches classes on cooking insects at the Culinary Institute of America, speaks at conferences and events, and is even working on a NASA challenge to create circular food systems in space. To get started, I asked him to tell us what his organization, Brooklyn Bugs, is all about, and posed one of the main questions that might be on your mind. Why should we eat bugs?
5: I hate to answer a question with a question, but why shouldn't people eat bugs? people have an extreme reaction in the Anglo-Western world towards eating insects. The idea of eating insects is usually like sensationalized as fear factor, but we have been incredibly successful at integrating our work culturally, where you see the Avengers, and in the future, Tony Stark is talking to his child about eating crickets, and we're seeing more and more examples where people are not sensationalizing it or making it turn out to be like apocalyptic food, but very matter of fact. And the idea of being able to change that perception from insects as a pest that bites you, that might eat your plants, and that might carry like a disease, and to transform that perception. To one of a, an edible insect, something that's sustainably farmed or harvested specifically for human consumption, that's processed at an FDA approved facility, that's nutrient dense. I mean, that transformation is so fascinating to me. And to literally be involved right now at this very present moment where the world has collectively never spoken more about eating insects than today, right now. And what's really important for me and my organization at Brooklyn Bugs is that, yes, while our work is rooted in environmentalism and sustainability, we don't try to pound down on that rhetoric because people would get so turned off if like we tried going, let's save the world by eating bugs. People would be like, Uh, We're not into bugs, and no, we don't want to save the world. We're not suggesting that eating insects is the end-all, be-all solution to to, to, to climate change, but it can be one of the things that we utilize and integrate into our lifestyles to mitigate climate change. And so the fact that we can be a part of this conversation and really help people to understand how it's even possible— The why is, I clearly say, in the UN's FAO report in 2013, uh, edible insects, future prospects for food and feed security. And so we have a great deal of supporting evidence and peer-reviewed science papers and all this knowledge that supports the sustainability, the nutrition, and the livelihood, just the great potential that, that the rearing and the practice of entomophagy, or eating insects, presents. And so... What we like to do is help people overcome a certain fear of the unknown.
1: What insects do you cook with most, and what is, for example, one of your favorite dishes in which insects feature prominently?
5: What insects do I cook with the most? Okay, cicadas. Crickets are regularly referred to as the gateway bug, and so it behooved me not to cook exhaustively with crickets. Mealworms are also a favorite. Black ants, scorpions are also really just incredible. Silkworm pupae, bamboo worms. Um, I mean, I could just really go down an entire list, but I would probably say those are among the most used uh, in addition to grasshoppers as well. And my favorite dishes cooking with insects is simply dishes that I love cooking seasonally. And I love cooking a lot of vegetarian dishes that are bolstered by insect protein. So I just love making all my favorite dishes and incorporating insect protein into them.
1: Now, the FDA, and every other country's FDA equivalent, has a certain percentage of bug parts that are allowed in every food. So whether we like it or not, we're all already eating bugs to a certain extent. Now, that being said... Most of our listeners probably have never tried a single bug on purpose. So, can you give us the flavor profiles of just a couple? I mean, say, cicadas or crickets.
5: So, some of the flavor profiles of the cicadas depends on the cicada nymph or the cicada adult. The nymph is an earlier stage of the cicada, and they have a slight almondy flavor it has an exoskeleton that kind of bursts open with the meat inside. Now, I all these answers are a little more complicated, but in a broad, generalized term, crickets have a nutty flavor and an earthiness to them. But depending on what they were fed, how they're processed, are they dehydrated, are they roasted, are they freeze-dried, all of those factors will have a factor in the ultimate taste of the cricket.
1: Okay, so in terms of nutrition now, how do insects compare to cows, pigs, fish,
5: other traditional livestock? So insects are packed with macronutrients, which means that they're high in protein, they're low in fat and carbs. So right off the bat, we're looking at, oh, okay, that that sounds like a really smart protein source. And what does that mean? It means that for their body weight, they are just packed with nutrients on average they might they're bought by body weight they they might be 60 to 80 percent protein and that eclipses all the traditional livestock
0: that was joseph yoon of brooklyn bugs you can check out their extensive resources and media coverage at brooklynbugs.com up next we're turning back to a more global perspective with IFAD's livestock expert, Antonio Rota.
1: You're listening to Farm's Food Future. Next up is Antonio Rota, the Senior Livestock Specialist here at IFAD. While IFAD doesn't currently invest in any insect production projects, Antonio has plenty of personal experience and professional insight from decades of development work around the world. Like Dr. Smalling and Dr. Subramanian, Antonio gave us a global perspective on the consumption of bugs by humans and also gave us a taste test of the industry side of things. To get us started, Antonio shares some of his own stories of eating insects in rural places around the world.
6: Well, in in other parts of the world, consuming insects is absolutely normal. I myself have consumed uh, insects uh, uh, because this is part of the diet of many populations so I, I I remember very well when I was in uh, uh, the uh, democratic uh, Republic of Congo at the time called Zaire where children uh, have uh, uh, teach me how to uh, eat uh, termites without you know be beaten on on my tongue or I was uh, eating uh, caterpillars. Uh, in peanut sauce uh, with cassava or fat palm worms grilled or in sauce, grasshoppers. In Cambodia, we went to a restaurant and, uh, you know, it was very famous for serving tarantulas. So uh, I I, I was not excited, (laughs) let's say, like many about the news of the possibility to access insects in restaurants or in any other form in uh, in Europe or in the Western part of the world.
1: So, why aren't bugs a popular food in the West?
6: I, I think that the consumption of uh, bugs, insects, etc., will remain uh, for some time a fad because because you know it, it depends on the country. Well, I mean, I'm Italian, so in countries like Italy, where there is a solid traditional cuisine, having insects as part of the diet will be, will be, will take time and a long time, I would say. Perhaps in other countries, more open with a less traditional cuisine, that will be maybe uh, faster uh, in, in picking up. Um the, the, the problem, the problem is, is mostly cultural.
1: So up until this point, we've been focusing on insects as food, food for humans. But the majority of the insect manufacturing industry is devoted to growing insects as feed, feed for other livestock. So tell us about this other side of the industry.
6: While for human consumption, I think it will take some time to adapt uh, in the western part of the world uh for human consumption uh actually uh insect meal uh dried insect meal uh it's already uh a very interesting product for livestock uh feeding now uh, what, let, let let me, let me say that like, for the moment. the the big, large companies are already um, producing products for the pet industry or the aquaculture, the fish production in which insects are very well suitable. Because one of the problem at this moment for substituting soya bean meal with insect meal is the price since the industry is just getting into this business the cost of production of insect meal at this moment is around 3500 US dollar per ton however projection in the in, in, in a quite short time could uh, with technology with uh, you know um, innovation you know, reduce the cost of those uh, um, of that insect meal So it it may become uh, more competitive, and
1: uh, especially for fish production. Last question for you, Antonio. Tell us more about the industry side of all this. What are some countries where this market is already big? And also, give us some forecasting. What are some of your predictions for the future?
6: There are countries that are very advanced. In Europe, certainly the Netherlands, uh, France, uh, in the even in the, in the southern part of the world in south africa I, I I met actually people already producing this kind of product and they're uh, reaching scale which is industrial so they can uh, come on the market with a large quantity and uh, in a reliable uh, way in a constant way which is the feed industry is is uh, and the food industry is is looking for. So, uh, in a nutshell, I think this uh, uh, the insects uh, for human and, and, and livestock consumption is something that will is is there is going to grow. But a particular in the in the livestock industry and in, in the fishery, let's say aquaculture industry there will be uh, a a significant uh, uh, growth in the future.
0: That was Antonio Rota, Senior Livestock Specialist at EFED. So while insects are already being produced on a large scale, especially for aquaculture and pet food, one huge barrier to opening up the market more is high production cost. Our next guest is acutely aware of these high production costs, as she runs one of the biggest up-and-coming insect-farming companies in Ghana. Shobita
1: Sur is the CEO of Legendary Foods, a company in Kumasi, Ghana, which grows, processes, packages, and sells palm weevil larvae. In 2013, Shobita co-founded Aspire, which is now the largest cricket manufacturing company in the world. But as of 2020, she runs her own company, catering to the Ghanaian market, where people have been eating palm larvae for centuries. To start, I asked Shobita to get back to the basics by giving us a rundown of her business model.
7: So... Our main value proposition is to democratize access to palm larva by farming it, whereas otherwise it would be foraged from the wild. Um, And so we have a pilot farm here in Kumasi that looks very much like a vertical farm and an assembly plant, uh, lots of bins, lots of shelves. We have an entirely local value chain. That means that all of our inputs, are um, are local and are, are are made locally, and so we're not dependent on uh, the forex in the same way to Im- import any um, of our inputs. Um, and then, um, as well, we also use waste, uh, industrial, agricultural waste, which is also you know quite quite helpful in terms of keeping the costs low. Um, and so, what we do is we farm the palm larva. Um, we then process it um, or sell it fresh and in its whole state. Um, the process products uh, or the products are branded with country specific branding and then they're sold in, you know, existing market channels. So par- primarily the general trade market, uh, retail as well. Um, so that's how we bring the products to market.
1: What are the biggest challenges for your company and more generally, the insect production industry in the global south or maybe in West Africa, if you want to take it more specifically
7: yeah, so I think that some of the main challenges come from challenges that other industries also struggle with so you know part of that is infrastructure, um, stable access to energy so you know, for us, we, we this is not an energy intensive process, but there certainly are parts of our farming system that are dependent on stable electricity supply. So, you know, that can be a challenge um, as well as infrastructure, right? So we want to be able to transport our product across the country very easily. We want to be able to get um, to peri-urban, rural areas. And sometimes it's just a real challenge in terms of um, the, the distribution networks and the kind of infrastructure that exists to access those markets. Um, so I would say those are some of the, the primary challenges that, that we experience as a result of, of, our, of the geography that we operate in.
1: Well, last question for you, and this is a lot more general. The insect-rearing industry keeps being referred to as a burgeoning market with enormous potential, you know, not just in terms of profits, but in making food systems more sustainable. So do you see it in that same way, or is this idea being overhyped in the media as of late?
7: I think it's probably not being hyped enough. Um, and I think insects are you know, extremely attractive from both the food security Food sustainability uh, and nutrition perspective, right? So, I think there's, of course, a lot of attention on alternative proteins right now. Um, but I think what's really exciting about insects is that you know they are traditionally consumed in their whole natural form. Um, the bulk of insect consumption in the world is not happening in a highly processed way, um, whereas you know some of the some of the uh, common sort of protein alternatives are highly processed. Um, And so I think having this availability of a product that can really have the nutrition of meat can be very much uh, akin to a, a superfood, so to speak, but then at the same time have this very low environmental footprint. Uh, I think is like super exciting for uh, the, the the food security and nutrition security, protein sovereignty uh, conversations. The other things that you know really make insect production attractive is that yes, it can be done. Um, in, in 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 tropical zones or you know in the global south, as you said, um, which which again really helps to relieve the reliance on uh, imported proteins. For example, where I am right now in Ghana, the bulk of protein, um, of especially animal source protein, is imported, it's coming from the China's, US's, Brazil's of the world. And so, um, insects, I think, provide a great Opportunity for um, a lot of that protein production to happen uh, to happen locally. So, yeah, I think the the buzz is certainly uh, warranted, and and I hope that it'll only increase in terms of helping us to popularize and really make mainstream uh, this this important source of sustainable protein.
0: That was Shubita Sor, founder and CEO of Legendary Foods. You can check out their products at legendaryfoodsafrica.com or their Instagram at Akokono House. Coming up, we're taking a step back from bugs and talking to Lara Gilmore about community empowerment through food.
1: You're listening to Farms Food Future. I'm Ian Smith, and here with me is Francesco Manetti, Food for Soul is a cultural project founded by the three Michelin star, world-famous Italian chef Massimo Bottura and his wife, Laura Gilmore. It intends to shine light on the
0: invisible potential of people, places and food. They say that by doing this, they want to build a culture of value that strengthens community resilience, opens opportunities for social and economic mobility and builds healthier and more equitable food systems. Lara Gilmore, explained to us how the idea of Food for Soul was born and how it connects nourishing people and making food systems more sustainable.
8: It began with an intuition, a small idea um, that was sparked by the theme of Expo back in 2014 when um, everyone started talking about Expo. It was going to happen in 2015 in Milan. And Massimo was, uh, let's remember, that the theme of Expo that year was Feed the Planet, Energy for Life. And Feed the Planet, Energy for Life was kind of this amazing sort of you know challenging promise. And you have countries from coming from all over the world to one place to talk about that. And Massimo started getting a lot of, Massimo is my husband, by the way. And we started receiving many uh, sort of requests to do a gala dinner during the expo? Or would you like to open a pop-up bar inside the fairgrounds? And wouldn't it be nice if you you did these culinary classes? Everything focused on the temporary in that fairground and something that would be maybe beautiful but fleeting. And Massimo, nothing settled with him. And so at a certain point, he started thinking, why isn't anybody asking me? what I think about this theme, what I would like to do, how I would resolve this problem, or at least address it, what my thoughts are as a chef in this you know, Italian culinary scene. and um, And so he started working on his own and thinking on his own. And one Sunday morning, he said, I have it. I have the idea. Of course, I sat down because whenever Massimo has an idea, it's like, It's already taken off. There's no turning back. He's already going down that road. So I wanted to brace myself. You know, we had um, gotten our third star in 2012 after 17 years of hard work. And my husband sits me down and says, I think we should open a soup kitchen during Expo, cooking with the waste, the inevitable food waste that's going to come out of Expo for uh, people in need. And that was his answer to Feed the Planet to focus on how we can leverage so much surplus food that is coming out of our supermarkets, our bodegas, our restaurants, you know, all over, and leverage that into delicious meals for people in need. And not only cook and show that ingredients can be looked at in a completely different way. You know, we're all become very, um, very used to this farm-to-table, freshest ingredients, just pick from the farm, and will do with nothing less, especially the chefs. But what if you don't have that ingredient? Everything that you have to cook with is kind of, you know, sort of not-so-great-looking potatoes and soggy zucchini and lettuce that's wilted and some basil that's so-and-so and, you know, meat that's about to expire. But you have an opportunity there to not only use your creativity as a chef, but to show that the greatest transformation is with that creativity and turn that into a delicious, healthy meal for someone in need. And so, um, you know, we start, We jumped on the bandwagon with this idea. We're able to get uh, collaborators from all different sectors, design, art, architecture, you know, furniture producers, lighting producers, artists. Massimo sent a letter to a 100 of his closest friends and colleagues, chefs, asking them if they would come to Milan during expo and cook in this new model for a soup kitchen. We promised them that the kitchen would be beautiful. We promised them that it would be a beautiful space, that there would be art, that there would be volunteers to serve the tables, that there would be, you know the correct atmosphere, but we couldn't promise them what ingredients they would have because every day it would be different. And we had such an amazing response from the chefs. So very few didn't get the idea that we moved forward. And within a year, we had renovated a theater that had been abandoned 20 years ago in kind of a neglected area of Milan called um, Quartiere Greco. And this theater became the theater of life really. It became a perfect example of what you can do when there's synergy and you bring people from different fields together. And you think about taking everything you've learned as a chef, as a business person, as a restauranteur and transforming all of those skills into something else, into a restaurant that doesn't have paying customers, but nonetheless taking those customers as seriously as you, as you can as if they were paying customers, guests coming through that door from different walks of life, bringing them around beautiful tables in a setting that feels like a celebration, feels like a restaurant, activating the community with volunteers who are going to be serving at the table, the guests. And all of a sudden we realized that what we were doing was, there was no turning back, you know, like this was for life. This was something we discovered. There was amazing energy. Everyone was, you know, It had their skin in the game, whether it was a chef coming in for two days or, you know, our partners, design partners, the artist. And um, we realized we were onto something by the end of uh, Expo in end of October 2015, because instead of saying, "Okay, guys, that was great, six months pop up. Not only did our partner, Caritas Ambrosiano, want to continue, but the volunteers in that neighborhood wanted to continue. And the chefs who worked in that soup kitchen had so many recipes from the visiting chefs that they, you know, had a plethora of, of, of creativity to work with. So we realized that this project might have legs, and that was the time that we formed Food for Soul, a nonprofit, to continue and explore what the future would be.
0: That was Food for Soul founder Lara Gilmore, and you can find out more about them at foodforsoul.it. And coming up now is the second part of our mini-series with the Global Donor Platform. We'll be talking to Karen Smoller from the International Institute for Sustainable Development and Ahmad Bahalim from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation.
1: This is Farms Food Future. Welcome to the second of our four-part series from the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development, which is currently hosted by EFAD. In this, we're going to hear from leaders in the donor world about the issues that matter to them. The platform is a network and partnership of 40 influential donors, including international development agencies, financial institutions, intergovernmental
0: organizations, and foundations. The membership aims to accelerate progress towards the sustainable development goals through collective influencing and knowledge sharing so that donors can successfully lobby for policies and increased funding in agriculture and rural development. In this second interview, we hear from Karen Smaller, Director of Agriculture, Trade and Investment at the International Institute for Sustainable Development and Ahmad Bahalim. Senior Program Officer in Agricultural Development at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our reporter Monique Amar asked Karin and Ahmad about what keeps them up at night.
3: Right now, it's the conflict in Ukraine and the atrocities being committed in Ukraine. But it's also the massive repercussions on poor and hungry people all over the world. So we're seeing skyrocketing food, energy and fertilizer prices And it's making people in Africa and the Middle East even more vulnerable and more desperate. That's what keeps me up at night, because it doesn't need to be that way. So I was born and I grew up in South Africa during the apartheid regime. And I saw um, growing up all the injustices that came from that regime. And I know because I've been working on this all my life that hunger and poverty are not inevitable that we can end this dreadful scourge?
9: A lot of things keep me up at night. I think a lot, a lot of us in, in the agricultural development community overall are being kept up by the urgency of the current food price spikes. We've got hunger hotspots in, in some parts of the world, such as in Ethiopia, Nigeria, Sudan, South Sudan, uh, and Yemen. And people there are at risk of starvation or even death and this will probably be made worse by the crisis in ukraine and i guess you know for for somebody like me i grew up in pakistan and have done development work for for a while now and we have the privilege of of remove and and sort of being able to flit in and out of uh, some of these hot spots or these situations but knowing or experiencing the deprivation that that people across the world face and that we could do something about it, it's certainly something that, that bothers me and if not, keeps me up at night.
10: Wow, thanks so much to both of you for those really powerful responses and for sharing your personal experiences with us. So my next question is related to both of your answers. As a global community, how can we work to help these people facing poverty and hunger We can
3: help people by investing in three big areas. The first is investments or interventions on the farm that will help directly improve productivity and the incomes of the poorest. The second is improving storage and services that farmers need to help them move the food they grow to markets. We need more investment to improve handling and packaging, storage services for more nutritious foods like fruits and vegetables. This would really help. And the third thing was that if we want all these other things to work, the farm interventions, the storage interventions, we have to empower the excluded by ensuring that every person has the right or gets the right to an education, a decent livelihood, and a political voice. So without those basic things, none of these other investments will work. If we can do that, we will help people who experience hunger.
9: Sure. I mean, so the the urgency of the humanitarian crisis is real. And that's probably what we need to take care of first. But in the long term, we have to develop a system, uh, an agricultural development system that delivers on these crises. Uh, they are preventable, and they just require a bit of forethought and investment. So the last few years, you know, the, the, the UN Food and Agriculture Organization has told us that conflict, economic downturns, and climate change are moving the trend line on hunger in the wrong direction. And the only real way to respond to that is to, to invest in, in agricultural development.
10: Thank you both for those really interesting answers. So clearly, we need to continue with agricultural development and build resilience to protect against crises like the ones we're experiencing now. But practically speaking, is ending hunger a realistic goal? Do we even have the resources as a global community to do this?
9: First things first, um, this is a realistic goal. As of 2015, with the Sustainable Development Goals, we have very, very specific targets. and. Of them, you know, we have a very ambitious goal. In the case of Sustainable Development Goal two, uh, to end hunger by twenty thirty, and then within that, we have targets such as uh, such as on small scale producer productivity, income, and sustainability in the form of SDGs two point three and two point four. So by being this specific um, and thinking through how these kinds of specific smaller targets lead to bigger goals, for example, SDG 2, the goal to end hunger, I think we we make these things more feasible and more realistic. So rather than talking in broad generalities, we can talk about things that are specific, that are measurable, that are realistic, that are time-bound, and that are fundamentally achievable.
3: So I was part of a, a team of 86 researchers from 23 countries who produced this very clear and convincing roadmap for the most effective ways to end hunger, including how much it would cost to end hunger and to do it in an environmentally sustainable way. The project was called Series 2030, Sustainable Solutions to End Hunger. So our study found that we need an extra $33 billion per year until 2030 to end hunger, double people's incomes, and protect the climate. It's peanuts. For an extra $11 per person living in the industrialized world, we could bring an end to hunger within our reach and to do it sustainably. It's criminal if we don't do this.
10: Wow, really inspiring to hear that ending hunger is so achievable right now in our lifetimes. So if we have all the information necessary to end food insecurity, what are the actions and priorities that we need to focus on in order to actually eliminate hunger for good?
9: Sure, Um, I'll, I'll walk you back a little bit though. Although we have the resources, um, we haven't allocated them to, to achieve this goal yet. So that's probably an important challenge I'll to get to that. And the truth, although we have good goals, targets, and indicators, we actually don't have the data. So this is a little bit where our work at the Global Donor Platform under the Sustainable Development Goal 2 Roadmap, a working group, comes in. So since about 2015, when we agreed to these targets, indicators, and goals th- that I mentioned, the donor community quite quickly realized that we weren't um, able to measure where we were at, and we didn't have a plan to get where we needed to be. So we've been working together in this group to, to build this roadmap. Through the, the Roadmap Working Group and, and support from our colleagues at the platform, we, on the donor side, have made quite a bit of progress in terms of actually having a plan, being able to track how we're collectively making progress towards it. And to, to go back to your earlier points of, you know are, are these kinds of ambitious goals or targets realistic or are they feasible? Yes, they are, as long as we have some sort of plan to deal with it and some sort of way to track what kind of progress we're collectively making. So for that, we're definitely grateful to to the platform and, and to eFab for hosting the platform.
3: So add more resources, spend the money better. This means the money has to go through existing financing mechanisms. So organizations like IFAD have to get more money and to channel that money to the people who need it. Programs like the GAFs, the Global Agriculture and Food Security Program need more resources to channel. We also need platforms like the Global Donor Platform that helps bring donors together and make sure that they know what each other are doing and that they coordinate their actions better. We also need coalitions like the Zero Hunger Coalition that was launched at the un Food Systems Summit last year to help align activities or actions better and to advocate for more and better spending. And we need the private sector because we cannot raise this money without the involvement of the private sector. All these things together and we can get the action we need to achieve zero hunger.
1: That was Karen Smaller from the International Institute for Sustainable Development and Ahmad Bakhalem from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. More news fresh from the wonderful world of donors in Podcast 33. And you can find out more about the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development at www.donorplatform.org. Coming up, the second of our other mini-series from the World of Impact Assessments, where we get to see if we're getting development right with rural communities.
0: So that was the donor perspective on rural development. Now it's time to take a deep dive into an IFAD impact assessment. I promise it's a lot sexier than it sounds. We've been talking to the people here at IFAD who look at how to make the most of investing in farming communities. IFAD Research and Impact Assessment Division, our unsung heroes, look at the good, the bad and the ugly to make sure we learn as much as we can from the way we work, and to make sure we get the job done. Brian spoke with Romina Kavitasi, turning our attention to IFAD's work in Tajikistan. 74% of its 9 million population live in rural areas with 20% of GDP from the agriculture sector, and livestock is a key part of agriculture in Tajikistan. Romina told us that overgrazing and a lack of rural infrastructure has been exacerbating the degradation of pasture lands and causing poverty amongst the population to rise. Brian asked her what we were doing
11: to improve things. They um, provided technical assistance uh, through uh, teaching breeding techniques for the livestock to select the better species. Uh, but they also provided shelters for uh, animals and water points. And these were a key determinants to uh, save time uh, to go water the animals in summertime, uh, but also in the winter. And the shelters are a key determinant of uh, maintaining weight for livestock, especially in the winter, because they don't have to uh, waste calories to maintain temperature. Um, in addition to that, they also uh, provided um, support in terms of fodder uh, seeds and fodder production and establishing a rotational plan for pasture so that they could uh, recuperate the degraded uh, pasture land. Uh, of course, this also implied a huge amount of work in terms of uh, pasture user union and social capital to, um, to make sure that there were no conflicts and that the rotational plans were respected. The interesting bit was also targeting uh, some of the activities towards uh, women and the support provided by veterinary services.
9: It it sounds like a a huge project and a huge undertaking. How how is it that you and your team go about analysing the project?
11: So what we did was In our uh, work, um, it's very important to select uh, the the sample uh, for uh, assessing and estimating the impacts. And that is because uh, we can select randomly the, the participants to the project, the beneficiaries, but we also need to have a comparable group of people that had exactly the same characteristics of the participants both in terms of socioeconomic and demographic characteristics, but also in terms of endowments, of um, access to resources, of um, agroecology uh, and of uh, um, economic conditions under which they operate. So, for example, uh, we uh, do a first selection based on um, more, let's say, uh, topographical and agroecological settings uh, so we use variables that are also geo-referenced and um, indicate access to infrastructure altitude uh, climatic patterns over the last 30 years as well as the variation in the last year of the selection and then we match all these variables through a statistic technique um, and we select villages that are as close, as similar as possible to the participant villages. And then within these villages, when we select the potential control and the beneficiary villages, we randomly select the population uh, and select households that um, are part of our sample. In the Tajikistan case, because there are pastor user union that dates back to the Soviet time, It was easier to select randomly the household because everyone in villages that are living out of livestock participate in the pasture usage union, and so a random selection of a listed household is easier to implement compared to situations in which only some people undertake certain activities, in this case pasture and livestock. So
9: if if you were to sum up the findings from this, what would you say were the, the main lessons that were learned?
11: Water points as well as the fodder and veterinary activities have been uh, instrumental to allow to achieve better income and um, uh, better access to uh, assets and resources that were also provided by the project. But this, what is most interesting is also that they managed, because this is a project that has a strong component related to adaptation, and so adopting the practices that are very context-specific to the tajikistan Catalan region, and uh, being more um, ready when an uh, eventual shock occurs, but in ca- it, it must, more in general to the changes of, uh, of climate over time, And they did manage to increase the uh, weight of livestock, so the productivity, both in terms of weight as well as in terms of milk production. But from an environmental point of view and so ecological footprints, they managed to reduce the livestock herd. And this was achieved in the second phase of the project. Which is quite an interesting result, because thanks to the social capital, they managed to uh, convey the issue of the tragedy of the commons. And so that if everyone exploit uh, the pasture and the resources they have available, then um, everyone fail in the long run. And so people did stick to reducing the number of livestock um, units, but at the same time they have increase the productivity and also have a better access to the market so they are selling at a higher price and a larger share of uh, of their products and so overall we saw a good impact on income uh, particularly coming from uh, livestock
9: so what do you think is going to happen next ramina
11: Uh, Well, I hope, I mean, we have shared uh, the lessons learned to a large extent with the the country team, with the project and also with the region, also comparing with other projects. So I understand they are now designing a new uh, project in the same region and and we are part also of uh, the group that contributes with input. And so hopefully the lessons learned in this project are conveyed into new project design and strategies. And at the same time, I also hope that this project will be sustainable in the long run and that they will manage to maintain increased uh, productivity and at the same time maintain uh, the number of livestock units uh, without increasing it to avoid a higher uh, ecological footprint. Of course they are also contributing to mitigation by uh, the rotational plan and um, and the adaptation options that they have uh, adhered year too
1: many thanks to romina Kavatasi. next month we'll talk to aslihan arslan about ifad's work in zambia
0: and that brings us to the end of podcast 32 many many thanks to the fabulous brian thompson our five-star director and everyone else who's worked on this program. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms, Food, Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at
1: www.ifad.org podcasts. Next month, we'll be talking about resilience building in the face of famine and rising food and fuel prices. Plus, we have two big names from India who will be joining our Recipes for Change family of chefs. Remember,
0: we want to hear from you what do you think about our stories and the issues discussed and who do you want us to be talking to. So please get in touch at podcasts Send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget
1: to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform. And please, rate
0: us. We'll be back at the end of June with more news, fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet, and good for farmers. Until then, from me, Francesco Manetti. And from me, Ian Smith, and the
1: team here at EFAD. Thanks thanks for for listening. listening.